So we continue this week to look at this upside-down kingdom that Jesus prescribes in reality. It's us who are upside-down. I don't know if you've seen the, the, the show Stranger Things. I don't know if you've watched that, but there's this whole premise called the upside-down, and it's this, it's this upside-down world that's all distorted and, and, um, and terrifying in a sense. Uh, the craziest part about this series is that what we come to realize when we encounter Jesus, when we sit at his feet on the mountain and we let him challenge our kingdoms is that that's the kingdom we've been living in. That's the kingdom that has become comfortable to us. And so we, we enter into this series today to talk about another thing that comes up often, you know, uh, churches and pastors and long as there have been churches and pastors and religious people. Uh, since, since the beginning of time, uh, we have been accused of hypocrisy. We all know that God calls us to serve and minister from the heart. And that that's what matters to him, but we lose sight of that fact. And it was no different in Jesus' day. And so these throngs of people that sat at his feet as he taught... Um, they lived in a world where you did things maybe perhaps for show. You did things maybe perhaps for duty to prove God, to prove that you were a person of God, to prove that you were better than others. And Jesus challenges them. He calls them to account. And he says, that's not God's divine order. That's not the way he made things. If you look at our piece of art this week. This is um, by Alex Wooden. She's our art teacher here at the school, and I love this. Um, inspired by this passage, she portrays this notion that God puts in my hands the light of love, the light of truth, the light of grace, the light of mercy, and it's his, and it only shines if it shines through my heart to the people around me, and not for any other reason. And so that's that's the challenge that we take up today. Hear these words of Jesus. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Lord God, as we receive your word today, we ask for your help as we come and sit at the feet of Jesus and let him challenge our kingdoms. We ask that you would search our hearts, that you would shine light on all those dark places and that you would purge them of anything that wouldn't be that light come from you to pour forth for your glory and not for our own. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to try not to slip in the puddle this morning. Uh, you know, I love that artwork, and I love it in part because uh, I know the family uh, that raised uh, the young woman who created it. Uh, it's a blessing, man, to be in a community for a long period of time and just to see these people grow up and, and really contribute to the community in an amazing way. She is an awesome person. Great to have her working at the school. I am super excited about that. Uh, I'll bet her parents are even more excited about that because it is awesome when your kids get a job. I'm just going to tell you straight up. Like, it is, 
I got two to go, man, but I got one there, so it's, it's a beautiful thing, okay? But the art is contributing to this series. It is. Like it comes to us and it communicates something to us that maybe a spoken word can't. So let it communicate to you. You know, if you've been following along with us in this study, then you know we've been asking you to do the same thing week after week, so I'm going to ask it again, and here it is. We're asking you to take the risk, because that's what it feels like of going up onto the mountain with Jesus, and there, once up there, allowing Jesus to challenge your little kingdom with His infinitely greater kingdom. Okay? Feels risky. Why? Simple, isn't it? It's because we love our little kingdoms. I love my kingdom. My kingdom is my passion. My kingdom reflects my desires. My kingdom reflects my values. My kingdom informs and reflects my thinking. I mean, we love our little kingdoms. And so now you're coming to me, Tom, and you're going, go up onto the mountain and have Jesus challenge it. Like, what am I going to do when I get there and he challenges it? Am I going to argue with him? I'm not so sure I want to take the risk. Feels risky. You know what takes the sting out of this? It's the other piece. It's the other thing we've been asking you to do every week. And what is that? We've said, look, when you go up onto the mountain to meet with Jesus, don't forget your heart. Don't leave that behind. In fact, don't even go unless that's what you're bringing with you. Lord, I have nothing to offer you but this. And it's a bit of a mess at that. Because here's what the Lord does. And that's what every one of these messages is about. He takes your heart. He forgives your heart. And then little by little, bit by bit, day by day, week by week, month by month, by the power of His Spirit, through His Word, in community with His people, He changes what you love. He changes your passions. He changes your desires. He changes your values. He changes your thinking. He makes you more and more and more reflection, not of the heart that you handed Him, but of His own heart. That's what he's transforming you into. And so, you know, that takes some getting to, I mean, no doubt. Last week, Jesus got to it. Like, he came to us with the most upside-down sounding thing possible. It's like he came and he said, all right, so here's the deal. Have a seat. If any of you have smelling salts, this would be a good time to get them out. Some of you are definitely going to need to be revived after this. I know that this is going to sound completely upside down to you, but here is the fruit of a heart that you hand to me and let me transform. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. You're like, oh, dude, I am out. Like, that doesn't even sound smart. They'll take advantage of me, but, but then I have to give up my rights, but they don't deserve it. Look, I can't do that with my heart. But I can do that if my heart's been transformed by the love of Jesus who hung on a cross while I was as yet his enemy and who from the cross openly forgave, prayed for the men who nailed him to it. Love your enemies. That was last week. So today he comes to us and he says, oh, in addition to loving your enemies, keep that in mind, but in addition, I want you to give to the needy. And when he talks about giving to the needy, and you just heard Matt read it, he uses this word twice. You ready? He says, when. So what is Jesus assuming in this whole conversation? He's assuming that you and I are, you know, I mean, like, of course, we're, we're, we're giving to the needy, which is not necessarily a safe assumption in our day. I mean, it might be a safe assumption for some, but it's certainly not a safe assumption for all. However, it was really actually a safe assumption back 
in his day. And the reason for that are like there are thousands. But, but one is that in those days, man, it was like we're all going to make it through together or we're not. They didn't have insurance. They didn't have Medicare. They didn't have Medicaid. They didn't have all of these governmental programs. Like they had nobody coming to them and going, give us the needy and we'll take care of it and we'll just charge you taxes. It's not what had happened. In those days, I might be doing really, really well, but my neighbor is not doing really, really well, and I'm helping my neighbor because I know that six months from now, he might need to help me. So there was a community ethic that was different in the days of Jesus, but there's another major difference, and I hope, I don't mean to insult with this, but those people back then really knew the Bible, and they knew what the Bible says about me and you and all of our stuff and the needy. And it doesn't say it once. It's like all over the place, but I'll give you one example. Solomon in Proverbs 3.27 says, do not withhold good. Now, what does that assume? It assumes that we have something good that we could actually withhold from who? From a needy person. That's who he's talking about, but how does he describe the needy person? He says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. You know what that means literally? Do not withhold good from its owners, which kind of doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? I mean, because you hear that and you think, well, why would I do that? I mean, in other words, if I had a good thing, but it didn't actually belong to me, it belonged to this needy person, and the needy person on top of that all had need for the good thing that I possessed but actually legally belonged to them, I mean, why would I not give it to them? Of course I would give it. It would be wrong for me not to give it to them. What in the world is Solomon saying with this? He's saying that the Lord sees things a little bit differently than we do. He's saying, you know all that stuff you've earned? You know all the things that you've worked for? You know what you've accumulated by taking risks and by deferring gratification and by working the extra time and by going beyond what everybody else has done? All of those things that you've invested and cultivated and fertilized and grown up out of the ground, these crops that are legally, in this world, yours. Okay, here's the deal. When, when there's somebody in your life and they're authentically in need of whatever good thing you have, it might be your time, it might be a listening ear, it might be a word of encouragement, it might be your resources. In heaven, legal title is transferred from you to them. God's like, don't withhold from them what's actually theirs. That's upside down, isn't it? It's upside down until you hand your heart to the one who, though he was rich, became poor, so that through his poverty, both now and for forever, you could have the wealth of heaven. You could have the wealth of the Holy Spirit. You could have the wealth of relationship with Almighty God. You could have the wealth of eternal life and of forgiveness, of a clarity of conscience, of purpose, of meaning, of joy, of all of these things. Suddenly, we're a lot freer. But that's the ethic of the Bible. And so Jesus, when he comes to us to talk to us about giving to the needy, is assuming that ethic. He's saying, hey, hey, yeah, you know what? When you do that, and then what does he talk about? Because it's the point of every message in this study. He talks about our heart. He says, look, when you do that, do it with a heart that actually loves the needy person more than it loves you. All right, we have all done this. I have done this countless numbers of times. I'm going to try to illustrate the difference between these two hearts. Got it? It's not going to be pretty. It's not. 
There's a selfish sickness of the heart that I have and I've experienced it. I've got it, so I'm telling you that, and I don't think I'm alone. We've all been at the gas station, and we've been filling our car up with gas, and we've looked up, and we've seen an obvious person in need, and that obvious person has looked up and seen that, us, that we saw them. Eye contact has been made, and now they're coming toward us. All right, in that moment, be honest. What's the calculation you're doing in your head? Because here's what you're not thinking. You're not thinking, listen, if I give this person a couple of dollars, are they going to spend it on something healthy or unhealthy? Is it going to be food or is it going to be beer? Is it going to be, you know, water or is it going to be cigarettes? You're actually not thinking about any of that stuff. If you want to know the reality of the inner workings of the heart, what you're thinking is... What's the smallest denomination of cash I have in my wallet right now? Because I'm going to maybe give that to this person not to meet their need, to meet my need to be left alone. Right? It's sad, but it's true. Jesus comes to us, and He doesn't go after, by the way, our comfort. He doesn't go after our convenience. He doesn't go after our safety. I mean, it may be that it's a little intimidating for you, and to buy your peace, you give away $5 because you're authentically scared, and maybe you should be. But he doesn't even go after that. He goes after our pride. The most insidious part of our heart, he says, guys, when you give to the needy, you know, don't do it publicly. Like, don't do it in a way that people are going to know about. Don't do it in a way that people are going to notice. Don't do it in a way that people are going to turn around then and celebrate you for. When you do that, he says, you're going to get the reward that you were actually after, which wasn't meeting the need of the needy, though perhaps you met a need. It was meeting a need in your heart. It was meeting your need to be noticed. It was meeting your need to be recognized. It was meeting your need to be celebrated. It was meeting the needs that Christ has come into the world to set you free of. So he says, look, if that's why you do it, when you're celebrated, well, then, you know, don't be disappointed with the reward. You got the reward you were shooting for, which is the reward of man. But then kind of sadly, he says, but you're not going to get the reward of God. And what is the implication of that? It is that the reward of God is immeasurably greater, and it certainly lasts a lot longer, does it not? Listen, the the celebration of man lasts about as long as the applause does, and then when the applause ends, what happens? It's replaced by a hundred more requests because now you're on everybody's radar. True? And what does that do? It puts you back at the gas station. Except now it's not a stranger that you're concerned about being free of or disappointing It's somebody you went to school with. It's somebody you work with. It's somebody in your family. Like a hundred requests. Look, I could get excited about five of those and feel like I'm super called to that and the Lord is moving me to be involved in those things or maybe three or maybe two or maybe one, but I'm all in. Give me a hundred and I'm sitting around going, I don't know if I don't want to disappoint so-and-so. If we give them $500, do you think they'll be disappointed with that or do you think that will be okay? might be the greatest cause in the world, but suddenly in here... This isn't about meeting somebody else's need. It's about meeting my need. Man, the heart is a tricky thing. It's incredible. Jesus says, look, let me help you with this. First of all, you've been noticed by God. You've been recognized by Him. 
You have been celebrated, and indeed you are celebrated by him. He gave the life of Jesus that he might have you for forever. That's a remarkable, transforming reality when you let it into your heart. And you know what that frees you to do? It frees you to give in secret because you no longer need to be noticed or recognized or celebrated or any of these other needs. They're met in Christ. Now I give in secret, and my Father who sees in secret does what? He rewards me. It's amazing. It's all upside down until... Jesus does his transformational work in your heart, and then it's, it's right side up. And I can't think of a better illustration, a better picture of all of these things. Love your enemy. Give to the needy. Okay, do it with the right heart, a heart that loves the needy more than it loves you. Then the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus gives us, and it starts with a character, guys, that I think that a lot of us can relate to. It starts with a guy who is a Jewish expert in the law, Okay, who sees this ethic of the Bible that says, you have good things. This person needs what you have. In the eyes of God, title is now transferred into their hands, and you need to give it to them because you're withholding from them what they own, even though you've earned it. This guy sees that, and he goes, okay, we got to somehow put a lid on this. Like, how do I skinny this thing down, man? I got to make this manageable for me. So he says to Jesus, insincerely, effectively he says, you know, Lord, I I get it. Like, I got to do the needy guy thing. But what you're really talking about here, I mean, it's just the needy neighbor of mine, right? The Lord says, right. And then here's how you know that he was a young and inexperienced lawyer. He didn't just sit down and stop asking questions. That's the deal. That is the classic mistake of young lawyers. It's like you get the witness to say everything you needed. So, officer, my client is actually not guilty for this accident, right? Right. Sit down. Don't say, are you sure about that? Well, actually, I'm not so sure about that now that I think about it, you know, and the whole thing falls apart. So I have to do this, and I have to meet the needs of the needy, and what I have belongs to them, and I get up at the needy. That's just my neighbor, right, Jesus? Yes, sit down. No, he doesn't do that. He asks one more question, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, you know what, why don't you have a seat, because you're going to get dizzy here in a second. Do we have smelling salt? I'm going to tell a story, and it's going to answer your question. It says a man, and it's a Jewish man. It's the only way the story works. A man who looks just like you, Mr. Expert in the Law. Just like everybody there that day, up on the mountain. It says a Jewish man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He means that literally. All these people knew this road. 17 miles long, descended in elevation 3,500 feet from Jerusalem to Jericho. So notoriously dangerous, it had an unofficial name. It was called the Way of Blood. So what else did they know? They know you don't walk this road alone, and yet that's exactly what this guy is doing. And it makes what happens next so incredibly predictable. Jesus says, and this foolish man fell among robbers. Of course he did. And what did they do? Well, they did what robbers do. They stripped him. They beat him. They departed, leaving leaving him helpless and naked and bleeding and half dead but not entirely dead. And so then he says, now by chance, a priest was going down that same road. And when that Jewish priest, what, saw his helpless, naked, bleeding, dying Jewish brother, all right, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, Jesus said, a Levite, another Jewish religious man, when he came to the place and he saw his helpless, naked, bleeding, dying Jewish brother, 
He did the same thing. He passed by on the other side. And you say, well, you know, why did these guys pass by on the other side? I mean, there are lots of possible answers. You say, well, all right. I mean, you know, maybe uh, they thought he was already dead. I mean, he's half dead. Looks like he's dead. Maybe they thought he was dead, and they thought, all right, too late for this guy, I guess. Nothing I can do to help him. But that could not have been the case because there was a statute. There was a law. There was a understanding. Everybody knew that if you came upon an abandoned corpse, you must, not might, want to think about burying him. So if, if he was dead, why didn't they bury him? You say, well, these are religious guys, and they work in the temple, and isn't it true, Tom, that if they touch a dead thing, now they're ceremonially unclean, and they are unfit now to work in the temple and to perform their duties? All true, but what does Jesus have them doing here? He has them also coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So they're done with their temple duties. You say, all right, well, maybe they came across this guy, and they thought, what a fool, like, What did this guy do? Like, what did this guy think was going to happen? Let's make a value judgment here. Let's decide that maybe this guy needs to learn a lesson, or maybe all of society needs to learn a lesson at this man's expense. Maybe it is good for one man to perish that everybody else might be saved. And they left him behind. But Jesus has them walking down the road by themselves too. He makes them guilty of the same foolishness. Look, he's trapping us in the story, them, me, you, by taking away all of our excuses and leaving us with nothing but the bare, ugly truth, which is that these guys came across this guy, and they saw him and went, I don't have time for this. I mean, this guy is too big a mess for me. I look at him, and I know immediately this is a project. I have enough projects. I don't want another project, and I'm not going to take this project on. It's going to take too much time. It's going to take too much effort, too much emotional resources. It's actually going to cost me physically, like materially. Like, this is a major inconvenience, and I have no space for this. Hopefully, somebody else will come along soon. Oh, and it's probably also dangerous if I stick around here. Because, I mean, where did the robbers go? (laughs) Are they still around? It's all in here, isn't it? It's all about me. So Jesus traps us in his story, and then he shocks at least his first century Jewish audience by introducing a third character. He says, but a Samaritan, an inveterate enemy of the Jews, that's why they would have been shocked. As he journeyed down from Jerusalem to Jericho, same path, and alone, came to where his helpless, naked, bleeding, dying Jewish enemy was, and when he saw him, notwithstanding the fact that, I mean, the robbers might be around and he might be next, notwithstanding the fact that the guy's an obvious mess, major project, notwithstanding the fact that as a Samaritan, no one, no one expected him to help this guy out, and notwithstanding the fact that he knew that if the shoe was on the other foot, he would not be getting help from that guy in the ditch. Notwithstanding the fact that not only would he get no credit for doing this, but in fact, he would have to explain to his family, to his friends, to his entire community, why in the world he would do something like this. He'd be scorned for it, All right, it says that when he saw him, he had compassion on this needy man. And I just want to stop and go, okay, where did he have compassion on this needy man? And I don't mean like what mile marker on the way of blood. I mean like where in his person? 
It's the part that Jesus wants. It's the part that he's saying, hey, bring it up here in whatever condition it's in. He's moved in his heart. And here's what that looks like. He then personally went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then somehow he got down in the dirt, right? And he somehow got his arms up underneath this sweaty, naked, bleeding, dying Jewish enemy of his and got him up and he set him on his own animal. He canceled all of his plans for the next day. And he brought him to an inn and he took care of him personally all night. And then the next day before he obligated himself any further, he did what, you know, any intelligent person would do. He got the guy's full name, his address, his social security number. He ran a credit check on Experian. He had him sign a promissory note. I mean, let's not get carried away here, right? Look at what he does. He took out two denarii, enough for room and board for two weeks, and he gave them to the innkeeper. And all these people in Jesus' original audience knew that innkeepers in that day were notorious for being dishonest. And then he said this, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, it's an open tab, I will repay you when I come back. And you say, all right, so then, you know, like what happens next? Does he live or die? What about the Samaritan? Like, does the innkeeper take advantage of the Samaritan? Does the Jewish man live and then pay the Samaritan back? all that he had, you know, expended in his need and in his help. Does he do that? Do they become like friends? And then they have like family reunions together, and it's this sort of amazing picture, and it's beautiful of reconciliation and all of this. No idea. It's the end of the story. But the story is not made to end. See, when you go up onto the mountain with Jesus and you give him your heart, he wants to transform your heart and make you the continuation of the story. It's meant to find life in us that doesn't end. And you know that because Jesus then turns and he looks at this Jewish lawyer and he says, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And, you know, the guy says, well, look, I may be inexperienced, and I blew it with the extra question. That's obvious. But that was not my question. You know, Madam Court Reporter, read back my question. You're going to have to go back before the story. It's, a, it's set it all up. He doesn't do that. Why? Because he knows that his question has been answered. Every person who has ever read this story knows the answer to the question, what is it? It's not every hurting person on every road of life. That's not the question to who is my neighbor. But for me, it's, it's the hurting people on my road of life. And for you, it's the hurting people on your road of life. Jesus said, which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And this guy betrays the prejudice of his heart. He can't even use the word Samaritan. He simply says, the one who showed mercy. And that's true. And Jesus said to him and to me and to you, all right, so bring me your heart then. Let me transform it because here's my command. You go and do likewise. I can't do that on my own. Like, heart, what I have, no. But if I take it to the Lord and I allow Him to transform it with, among many other things, the reality that because of the way that I've lived, 
maybe compared to God at least. I've lived in such a way as to leave myself helpless, naked, bloody, and dead. And yet even though I lived my life as an enemy of God, consciously or not, when He saw me in the ditch, He didn't leave me there, and neither did He do that for you. He entered into this world as one of us. That is to say, He put Himself on our road, and then what did He do? He was beaten. He was bloodied. He was killed to pay the debt that we owe to God so that we might be free of it, so that we might be forgiven, so that we might have the privilege and joy of taking our heart and going, you know what? I can't fix this thing. Like, it's just insidious. I'll tell you what. Here, you take it. Let's see what you do with it. Forgive it. Clean it up. And little by little, bit by bit, piece by piece, make it new. So, as we enter into our time of reflection, I want to give you some questions. I just I think I have six of them, five of them. And it starts with the simplest question, at least conceptually, like the obvious starting point. And the obvious starting point is just, have you brought your heart to Jesus? Is that a decision you've made? And have you brought it to Him on His terms? That's the only way it works. Like, I mean, at some point you've got to go, you know what? I'm the subject and you're the king. I'm the servant and you're the master. I'm the creature and you're the creator. I'm the imperfect one and you are the all-perfect one. I'm the one who needs to be fixed. And the most important thing I can do is come to you. So, again, here's my heart. Take it, and with it the whole of my life. Have you brought your heart to Jesus on His terms? Secondly, if you have brought your heart to Jesus, have you then seen a change in your loves and in your passions and in your desires and in your values and in your thinking? Because I'm just going to state it plainly. That's the way it works. It doesn't happen overnight. Sometimes it's like you charge ahead in your development, and then you go back for a while, and then you charge ahead again in your development, and then you go back for a while. Sometimes it happens really fast. Sometimes it happens really slow. But here's what never happens. I come to faith in Jesus, and nothing ever changes. I give in my heart. It's made new, but nothing's new. Listen to what John Newton said. He's the author of Amazing Grace. He said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what one day I will be, but I am not what I was. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. The Lord says, bring me your heart. And then by His Spirit, and through these things that we talk about all the time, personal worship and gathering and corporate worship, spiritual formation, service, in the community, acts of renewal. He changes it. Thirdly, what is your attitude toward the poor and the needy? And how have you positioned yourself to meet the needs of the needy? That is to say, to discover what they are, because frankly, it's really convenient to not know what they are, isn't it? I mean, if you don't see the guy on the side of the road, you don't even have the thought about, maybe I got to stop. So we move through life like this, and we insulate ourselves from the needs of other people. And, you know, sometimes we're just busy, which is itself an issue. Too busy to meet the needs, too busy to see them. And sometimes we are just doing like this. But I guess the other aspect of that is, 
How have you positioned yourself in life in terms of the way you use your time, in terms of the way you use your money, to create space to actually meet the needs of people? I think a lot of us make, you know, like this much, and a lot of us then spend like this much. And maybe God's saying, you know, maybe you should make this much and spend this much. And then you have this much to help people with. Matthew Henry, this brilliant commentator on the Bible, and I've sort of updated his language, but he says this, if the Lord takes away all of your good things, imagine that, everything that you have that's good now gone. You should grieve, he says, more over the loss of your ability to meet the needs of the needy than over the loss of your own personal comforts. Could sit on that one for a while, man. Fourthly, what motivates your giving? Who or what are you loving with it? I mean, when you really look at it. And then here's the last one, maybe the most practical. Who is the neighbor in your life right now that needs what you have? Maybe it's a listening ear. Maybe it's an hour of your time. Maybe it's for you to get involved in the details of their life. Maybe it is some material thing. Who is that person? I want to ask you guys to stand, and our prayer team can kind of make their way out. I want to encourage you guys, you know, as we pray together in a moment, as we sing together, um, take advantage of the opportunity to pray with these guys. I know that's a little different. It's kind of new to our culture. You know, we've never been a come forward or go sideways, I guess, now church. Uh, We just haven't. And so, you know, it feels a little weird to those of us who have never done that. Um, But don't let it feel weird. It's kind of like, look, if the Spirit is moving in your heart and you'd like to go pray with somebody and you feel like that would be a next great step for you, I want to affirm that in you and just free you to do it. If there's a place in the world that you ought to not need to feel self-conscious, this is it. Hopefully we all know who we are here and we're all on equal footing in front of the same Jesus. All broken, all in need of prayer. So if you want to slip out, take advantage of that, okay? Otherwise, let's, let's pray. Our Father and our God, I pray that now you would give us the faith by which to give you our hearts. Such as they are, Lord. Selfish, self-protective, prideful. God, you know the state of our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would give us faith this morning to stop withholding them from you as if you're trying to take something from us as opposed to give something to us. Let us bring you our hearts, O God, and then grant in return your forgiveness, your complete absolution, your past, present, and future statement of you are clean. And then work on us Make us to love what you love and to desire what you desire and to value what you value, to be passionate about your passions. Renew our minds with your word and by your spirit and make them like your own that we might think like you. And especially perhaps today, tell us who our neighbor is. Give us your heart for that person and give us a joy in this idea that, you know what, you've given me some good things, Lord, that, that actually belong to them. And it's my joy and privilege to meet those needs and in doing so to reveal 
the heart of the Father that you're fashioning in me. Do these things, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.